Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to episode 73 of Inside AgriTurf. See that news story reported by a number of media organisations about the theft of tractors and combines worth over $5 million and stolen by Russian troops from a John Deere dealership in the Ukrainian city of Melitopol, which had been thwarted. The dealership apparently was able to track the convoy of stolen equipment through GPS as it was being transported to Chechnya, 700 miles away, where, on arrival, it was discovered that the tractors and combines had been kill-switched and remotely disabled. To the Russians, this equipment would have been valuable bounty. Modern, sophisticated farm equipment is essential to both countries. Virtually all Western tractor and farm machinery manufacturers who had ramped up their presence in Russia over the past 10 to 15 years have closed manufacturing and distribution centres as a result of sanctions. But did this, I wonder, feel-good story disguise a much greater threat? Could rogue cyber warriors gain control of farm technology through hacking or blackmail to disrupt the world's agricultural infrastructure? So I'm joined today by Corey Doctorow, an award-winning science fiction author with a special interest in protecting human rights in this digital age and who questions whether this story does mask inherent long-term risks and could be a ticking time bomb. I caught up with him recently at his home in Burbank, California. So, Corey, thanks for joining me. Now, now look, I'm in my 80th year, emerging into this world more than 40 years before the internet came into use, and so I'm probably a lost cause in this digital arena. So I'm kind to remember a saying from one of your videos about the generational age of computer development. Yeah, that, well, that's not mine. That's Douglas Adams. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, Douglas Adams said, um, anything invented before you're 18 has been there all along. Anything invented between the ages of 18 and 30 is marvelous and incredible and virtuous. And anything invented after that is wicked and must be eliminated. <laughs> and, <laughs> Words yeah. to that effect. Well, well, that's great. Uh, look, before we just get into the meat of the, the John Deere and the disabled tractors in Ukraine, can you can you just give me a little bit of back, uh, expand a little on your background? And because I find it difficult to explain exactly who you are and, and what you are and what your aims are. Yes, indeed. In fact, before I became a British citizen, when I was uh, um, a permanent resident and, and I landed and I had to fill in my landing cards, there'd be that tiny little blank to write <laughs> occupation. And I was always stumped by it. So uh, I am a science fiction novelist. I've written about 20 some books, um, I, which include science fiction and also, <clears throat> excuse me, nonfiction about various policy areas. I uh, have founded a software company. I helped found the Open Rights Group in the UK, which is a digital human rights group. I have worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation for 20 years. I was formerly their European director. Um, I have worked as a programmer. Uh, I've worked as a journalist. I was a columnist on The Guardian for a decade. 
Uh, I founded a publishing company with some friends called Boing Boing that's still going, although I'm not involved anymore with it. My work is about uh, trying to ensure that human rights travel with us to the digital world, because the digital world, first of all, is is not a realm separate from the physical world. Uh, everything we do today involves the internet and everything we do tomorrow will require it. But also because the digital world is melting away. It's, it's very hard to speak of a digital world that is distinct from the physical world, from your car to your pacemaker. You have your body in a computer and your in a computer in your body. And so if we don't attend to human rights questions in those digital objects, uh, we will miss out on some very important equities. And because computers are different from other technologies in some really important foundational ways, it's important not just to have a grasp of the human rights questions, but also the technical characteristics. There are some times where governments try to improve the equities in computers and are told by computer scientists quite rightly that what they're asking for is impossible. And governments just choose not to believe them. They say, you know, you must nerd harder and eventually it will happen. And there are other times where governments ask firms or, or, or individuals to do more with computers, and they're tricked into thinking that it's impossible. And so understanding those technical characteristics is really important to navigating the policy landscape. And it, it means that you have to know something about sort of ethics and philosophy, something about law, and a lot about computers to really make sense of it all. I can understand how you fitted that all in the landing card. Um, well, we're here just, uh, I wanted to talk to you about this incident uh, in Ukraine, where these John Deere tractors specifically were were, were, were kill switched, uh, were, were remotely controlled. Uh, what, what was your initial uh, reaction when you heard that story? Well, for me, you know, the, the question that we fail to ask when we celebrate uh, the remote bricking of of tractors looted from Ukraine is why do tractors have kill switches? Who else can brick a tractor? Under what circumstances might that happen? What what does this look like when it's failing and not when it's working? And you know, it's it's a bit like those science fiction movies where you know someone slips on the bridge and accidentally toggles the self destruct button and the voice starts counting down from 10 until the spaceship blows up i always think you know i'm no aerospace engineer but i think all things being equal spaceships are better when they're not designed to explode and you know in the same way like there are some outlier incidents in which having kill switches and tractors really do help out but of all the times in which a tractor's kill switch or remote control facilities were activated by a manufacturer what proportion of those involved looted tractors in russia versus all of the other th ways in which this can go terribly horribly wrong yeah yeah and um, the, the background to this uh, then corey was uh, obviously technology that was um, really designed for the auto industry or the VIN, VIN um, locking, the vehicle in, um, identification numbering? Yeah, so I, the, I, I'm not actually sure if the auto industry invented it or popularized it, but they, they got to name it, and it's called VIN locking. And it's when you, you have these commodity cheap chips that before the supply chain crisis were everywhere and, and, and cheap as chips, you know, the, you could, you could get a system on a chip with like a network interface and a graphics interface and, you know, non-volatile memory and like basically a full-fledged Unix system for like 26 cents back in the old, you know, great before. And, um, and because these chips were so cheap, 
manufacturers started sticking them in every subcomponent of their devices. So, you know, I think probably before cars were doing it, I think it was probably in, in inkjet printer cartridges where you have a little chip and it's got a, it's got a factory installed cryptographic key. And when you put the chip, uh, the, the cartridge in your printer, the printer generates a random number, which computer scientists to the eternal amusement of British people call a nonce, uh, not that kind of nonce. Uh, it stands for like number used once. Uh, they, they come up with a random nonce and they send it to the chip on the cartridge and they say, please scramble this using your private key. And so that, that's the kind of the challenge. And then that, that scrambling and, uh, is called signing it. The number, the random number is signed. It's sent back to the printer. The printer verifies using the public key of the, the chip in the printer and the ink cartridge that it was signed with a private key. And they go, right, you're an original ink cartridge. I'll let, I'll recognize your ink and, and print with you. And, you know, this is billed as a way to block counterfeits, but it's primarily a way to charge more for ink than you would charge for, you know, vintage Veuve Clicquot. And then the auto manufacturers glommed onto it and they were like, let's put this in every subcomponent of the engine. I mean, we already have a computer network in the car. It's something called the CAN bus, and it's used to send data around the, inside the car. And what we'll do is we'll just make it so that if you swap out an engine part, if it's not the original manufacturer's spare, then it won't make the cryptographic handshake and we just won't recognize it. And we'll just, we'll just force you to go and buy first party spares. You know, the, the law protects your right as an auto owner to buy third party spares. The law does not deputize uh, original equipment manufacturers, car makers to um, decide which spares are and aren't good enough to go in your car. It's your car. That's your choice to make. If a spare is dangerous, the consumer protection agencies step in to, to solve that problem for you, not the automaker. They're not, they're not your, uh, you know, unsought for defender. If you want the automakers approved parts, you know where to get them. And so that, that became a, a mechanism to block third party parts and also third party repair because you can build these things not just so that there is a challenge and response that goes between the part and the engine, but you can build them so that there's an initialization sequence so that before the part will recognize the engine as opposed to the engine recognizing the part, you have to tell the part that it is okay to start working. And you do that by having a, an official mechanics kit that has its own cryptographic secrets that were embedded in the factory. And you, you enter the unlock code and the engine recognizes the part, the part recognizes the engine and the car starts. And this is just a way to put independent mechanics out of business. Um, so that started in the auto industry. We see it in lots of places. And during the lockdown, one place where it came into very sharp focus is with a firm called Medtronic, which is the largest medical technology company in the world. They are nominally an Irish company. They're really an American company that did a reverse buyout with an Irish firm so that they could avoid tax. Uh, and they uh, have bought most of the companies that make ventilators, and they've merged them into this one workhorse ventilator that is used all over the world. And a common repair that medical technologists in hospitals will do is to take parts out of a working item and put it in a non-working item so that they can make one good one. Uh, you know, you salvage donor parts. That's really important because, you know, if you're a hospital and you need someone's uh, uh, equipment to keep someone alive, you don't have two days to wait for the official technician to come out. And, you know, the, the, um, 
uh, Medtronic invented this idea of VIN locking for ventilators. And so during the lockdown, you had people who had ventilators with busted screens and you had people who had working screens from busted ventilators who were trying to marry them up and, and make a working ventilator as, as we went through this catastrophic global worldwide ventilator shortage. And of course, Medtronic officials could not get on airplanes and come and unlock that repair, bless that repair, even though it had the original manufacturer's parts in it. The parts weren't, weren't serialized to the device. The VINLOC worked. And we would have been in much worse trouble. We were already in terrible trouble as a result of this. But the problems would have been much worse were it not for an anonymous Polish technician who had worked for Medtronic and who had kept the device that generated these unlock codes and who put them in a programmable chip called an EEPROM. And um, Cottage made them. He didn't mass manufacture them. He, he uh, whatever the opposite of mass manufacturing is, he min manufactured them. Uh, and uh, and he just put them in whatever enclosures he had lying around and mailed them to medical technicians all around the world. He mailed them in guitar uh, pedals and the clock radios and bedside lamps, just whatever, so that these could be fixed. Now, you know, th- this characteristic of um, of, of, uh, being in a situation where you can't wait for a repair technician to come out and fix your stuff is common to the agricultural sector and has been, I think, literally since the year dot. And one of my favorite places in England is, uh, in, uh, um, Norfolk. It's the Beamish Museum. It's the largest outdoor museum in, in formerly in Europe, I guess now in the European region. Uh, and it's got all these little model villages. There's a coal town that they rescued in Victorian Market Street and so on. And there's a farmhouse with a Roman foundation and it has a forge and yeah. a workshop and a workshop. Because even in the time of Rome, you did not have time to wait for the blacksmith in town to fix your stuff. No. When the storm is coming and you need to bring the crops in, you need to bring the crops in. And so when John Deere, who again, like Medtronic, have gobbled up most of their competitors and now exist in in most of the world in a duopoly with one major competitor, when when John Deere started to vinlock its tractors, again, they said it was because farmers were... Uh, could hurt themselves or damage our food safety by affecting their own repairs, that they might buy counterfeit parts, that they're sort of naive country bumpkins who could not work on these sensitive electronic gear. But really what it was about was charging farmers $200 to come out and fix their $600,000 tractor at where fixing amounted to typing an unlock code into the console of a device that the farmer had themselves already fixed. It's charging $200 to make you wait for two days. And and that is where all of this remote locking stuff comes from in these John Deere tractors that were bricked in Russia. It is part of this overall scheme to turn farmers into a new kind of tenant farmer, where instead of paying an aristocrat for your land, you pay a kind of transhuman immortal colony organism call, called a limited liability corporation for the use of your tractor. Uh, but just as surely as you cannot farm without land, you cannot farm without your tractor. And so you are every bit as much uh, kind of manorial serf as you would have been if your land was owned by an aristocrat. And I suppose this comes down to the nub of the issue. Who owns the tractor and who owns the d- data uh, that comes off it? Who owns the coding? Because I understand John Deere allege or, or, or say that uh, farmers can never own the uh, the tractor outright because they own the coding. Is that correct? Yeah. So John Deere's argument is that because the software is a copyrighted work, uh, they have the choice to 
evade what is a bedrock of of uh, commercial law, which is the notion of what's called first first sale or exhaustion. So if you know if I sell you a potato. I don't get to tell you how to use the potato, right? I haven't licensed you the potato to only eat on Wednesdays. And I can't, I can't upsell you for a seven day a week potato. It's your potato. You get to, you can carve a Christmas tree stamp out of it and make your Christmas cards with it. It's your potato. But with copyrighted works, there's this idea of licensing. Uh, and this idea that you can kind of break down a copyrighted work into each use of a copyrighted work that you can sell someone the right to read a book, but not the last chapter <laughs> or to, you know, to, to look at a painting, but only if they're standing on one leg and if they want the two legged painting, right, they have to, uh, they have to buy that license as well. And, you know, we don't see a lot of licenses that look like that because they're very hard to enforce. If I, if I sell you a painting and you get to take it home and hang it on the wall, your, your two legged painting, right. Uh, doesn't have to be bought by you. You can just exercise it. You can pirate that that second leg because I'll never figure it out. It's a weird kind of pirate with two legs instead of one. Uh, but you know, with with once you add software, you start to get into a very new realm. So, for example, uh, if you buy one of Google's smart speakers, uh, and it now has voice recognition built in, and it can distinguish you from the other people in your house, like say your wife. And if you subscribe to YouTube as a premium under your own name that gets you YouTube without adverts, your smart speaker is capable of distinguishing your voice from your wife's. And when your wife asks it to start a YouTube video, she gets the ads. So as we've expanded the telemetry that digitally uh, enabled devices can gather, we've expanded the ability to enforce licenses at finer and finer degrees. And you know, as I started off by saying, the digital world is permeating the physical world. And this kind of license enforcement, which always existed as a theoretical possibility, but which was always cabined off by the, the reality of uh, the inability to enforce, that's coming to more and more domains. Um, and, you know, I think we should expect to see it in lots of places. We all know the stories about you know, Internet of Things ovens that only work with special ready meals and Internet of Things juicers that only work with special ready packs of frozen fruit. Uh, that is the model for, for all of our devices to, to have, for example, music collections that, um, you have bought and paid for, but which can't be left to your kids when you die because what you bought was not the music, but the license to the music. So unlike your, records or your CDs, your digital files might go up in a puff of smoke when you die. And um, of course, all this leads leads back to the, the, the fact that uh, a lot of these companies are collecting an enormous amount of data, not only about yourself, uh, but about the work you're, you're completing. And I think you suggested in the article you wrote on this particular subject uh, that Deer was uh, collecting aggregated um, data, uh, and in fact, selling it on to the, the uh, uh, futures market. Uh, yeah. was, was that? Uh... That's right. So you may have noticed that it used to be that if you had a gadget in your house and you wanted it to do something, you touched a button on the gadget or touched a screen or typed some commands to it. Whereas these days, you are likely to need a mobile device with an app and you send a command to your gadget by first sending it to the internet and then the company servers sends it to the device. Uh, and that's a model that allows the manufacturer to maintain extraordinary control after you do it. And also, as you say, to gather an awful lot of data on how you use your device, because it's this, this transaction is taking a loop 
through the manufacturer's own servers. And this is something that Deere did when they started to get into precision agriculture. So if you um, drive your tractor around your field, it has a lot of sensors that can tell you really interesting and useful things about your soil condition. So there are humidity sensors on the underbelly. Um, there's torque sensors in the wheels that report back the, the soil density. And then there's centimeter accurate um, location sensing. And so on a centimeter by centimeter basis, they can draw a grid in your field and tell you where and how to sow, how to broadcast your seed. And there is no reason that that data shouldn't just be something you take off your tractor on a USB stick or access over Wi-Fi when you get back home and you your tractor is parked in the barn and you can just reach into its computer by Wi-Fi. But that's not how Deer does it. Deer actually sends that data to its own servers. So if you want to do precision ag, it used to be now they'll let you get it through a portal. You, you still can't get it on your own. But it used to be that um, when they rolled out their precision ag feature, you could only get your data if you bought an app that came with seed from a single vendor, which was Monsanto, now Bayer. And so you'd have to buy seed from Monsanto, and that would come with your own data describing where in your field you should plant what kind of seed and at what density. And um, that data could not be extracted from your tractor, even though it was your tractor, because of this VIN locking business. And one thing we haven't touched on, but we should have mentioned is that bypassing one of these VIN locks, while it's not technically very challenging, is a felony. It's it's radioactively illegal. Starting in 1998, it became a felony in the United States under Section 1201 of something called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that prohibits, uh, on penalty of a five-year prison sentence and $500,000 fine for a first offense, manufacturing or trafficking in a tool that bypasses what's called an access control to a copyrighted work. So that would just be the software. So if there's something that stops you from changing the software, you can't access it. If you bypass that access control to change the software so you can extract your data yourself, the act of bypassing the control is itself a crime. That came into European law in 2001 through the European Copyright Directive, Article 6, which was then implemented in, in British law through the treaties uh, and remains a feature of it. And, and you know... If you are a Brexiteer who thinks that now that we're out of the European Union, we can get rid of it, that's technically true. But I should note that it was UK MEPs that lobbied very hard for it. This was not something imposed by by the UK on uh, on the UK by Europe. It was every bit as much something imposed on Europe by the UK. So this is this is a made in Britain uh, catastrophe, and so. Because um, Deere designed these tractors so that you couldn't do precision ag without getting the app, it also meant that they could get all of the data from all of the farmers who were driving all of the tractors and all of the fields. And that became uh, something that they could use uh, as a tool for selling market intelligence to futures traders, to commodities traders, uh, who are effectively placing bets against farmers. And that meant that the you know non-consensual expropriation of your data wasn't just a way to force you to buy a certain seed in order to use your your own data that you generated by driving your tractor around your field it was also a way to allow financial markets to suppress your wages to to reduce the price at which your goods were sold at market i, I understand but just because it's it's illegal then, Corey, it doesn't mean to say that it isn't done. And uh, I understand that a number of farmers, particularly in the US, have been buying uh, illegal firmware at 
ironically, from Ukraine uh, to try and fa- fix their tractors. And I'm assuming that because they're buying it from U- Ukraine, that some of the technology, a hacking technology, is, is available over there. So uh, it may be that may well go full circle. Well, and indeed, it's far more likely that the Russians who stole those tractors will get that software and use it to to unbrick their tractors and and restore them to good working order, uh, so that they can they can make good on their loot. And it's it is quite heartwarming to hear about Ukrainians figuring out how to jailbreak their tractors, and they did that long before the conflict. Yeah. Um, they did it. You know, for the same reason that anyone who wants to fix their things in a hurry without paying rent to do so and without um, having to wait and potentially risk, uh, you know, the commercial consequences of crop failure or what have you, uh, why they would do it. Um, and while I have no reason to suspect that the people who wrote this software weren't operating with the best intent, we don't know who they are and we can't see inside the software. This is not open source software. It's a proprietary blob. It could have backdoors. It could have unintentional security defects. Certainly John Deere's own software is full of unintentional security defects. Um, John Deere, uh, they, I think they now have a bug bounty program, which is kind of the gold standard for identifying bugs in software where you say to people, rather than just selling uh, the bugs in our software to hackers or just uh, publishing the bugs in our software so they can be grabbed and weaponized before we can fix them. How about if you let us buy that intelligence off of you and we will make a binding promise that we'll we'll tell people about this bug within a set period of time after we've rolled out a patch to fix it. The problem has been historically that when you allow a manufacturer to decide who can describe the defects in its project and its pro- products rather, that the manufacturer often decides that no one should know. They just, you know, the world is full of stories of security researchers who discover really grave defects. You know, for example, Medtronic's uh, med tech company I mentioned before, they have an insulin pump where you could, from a great distance, dump all of the insulin in the uh, in the pump directly into a person with diabetes bloodstream and and kill them. Uh, and Medtronic just refused to take the bug report seriously. They just kept saying it's not really a problem, and no one would ever be able to do this. And finally. They developed a prototype universal remote for killing people and presented it at a conference. And then finally, Medtronic uh, uh, fixed this and 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 made it work. We've had problems like this before. You know, uh, GMC Jeeps, uh, they ignored security researchers' reports of defects in their remote control or their um, networking code. They 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 put these. Um, cellular chips sims in their in their engines so that you could buy a wi-fi hotspot on demand in your car so if you're on a long ride and your kids were cranky you could type your credit card number into your car and get a wi-fi hotspot so your kids could watch youtube and they just didn't secure it very well and they connected it to that internal network the can bus in the car and these hackers you know white hat hackers uh, ethical hackers realized that they could use this to take control of the steering, the brakes, the ignition, the windshield wipers, everything in the car. And the manufacturer refused to listen to them until they presented it at a conference with a wired journalist, uh, Andy Greenberg, whom they put in a Jeep and then drove off the motorway at speed, you know, with at, in a, under controlled conditions, but seized control of the steering from him. And then after this wired blockbuster story, GMC recalled 250,000 Jeeps and fixed them. So, you know, you, you would expect firms to have bug bounty programs because that is the gold standard. And that was back in like 2015 that GMC had that problem. And as it was, I think, just this year that John Deere finally developed a, a bug bounty program. And we, we have heard from lots of security researchers who've come forward with uh, public bug reports 
that John Deere had been told over and over again about defects in its information security that they had just poo-pooed and, and not warned people about. And, you know, just because uh, uh, a good guy discovered it, it doesn't mean that a bad guy can't discover it. So if the manufacturer doesn't remediate it, there is every chance in the world that someone much more nefarious than this person who reported to the manufacturer will discover it and weaponize it and exploit it. And the manufacturer won't know that's going on and we won't know it's going on until it's so widely exploited that it can't be kept a secret anymore. That's more or less what happened with the ransomware epidemic where there were these known bugs that manufacturers hadn't addressed and then they were weaponized and then turned into ransomware. And so John Deere not only doesn't have a bug bounty or didn't have a bug bounty program, not only has all these defects, they have never once uh, reported what's called a CVE, a critical, critical vulnerable, critical vulnerability, I want to say exposure, uh, which is uh, an official report to uh, uh, the U.S. National Cybersecurity Agency that warns them about uh, an important bug. So as far as John Deere is concerned, they've never had an important bug, which is a thing we know to be false. So we know that John Deere is not good at security, right? They 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 are inhabiting a fool's paradise. This is like someone with with a you know not one to- tooth left in their head who swears blind that they've never had a cavity. You know, if they if they're telling you that they don't have any bugs and we know they've had bugs, then we know there are probably bugs we haven't discovered that they also have. You probably know, uh, Corey, that there's a number of court cases going on uh, under the Right to Repair Act, where, as I understand it, um, some dealers, farmers are claiming that John Deere violated the Sherman Act, whatever that is, um, Mm -hmm. and seeking damages for four farmers who paid for repairs by John Deere dealers um, for two or three years. What chance do you give of that actually being successful? Well, the, so you, you asked about the Clayton Act. That's an early 20th century antitrust law, a, a pro-competition anti-monopoly law. It's the law that was used to break up Standard Oil and um, uh, break the power of John D. Rockefeller. And it was a uh, good law that was uh, broadly enforced from the – especially starting in the 1930s with the New Deal right up until the Reagan years. Uh, and in the Reagan years, which were, of course, also the Thatcher years, a new theory of antitrust took hold in the UK and the US, in Canada, where I'm from, under Brian Mulroney, and in Europe, under leaders like Helmut Kohl. And this was something called the consumer welfare theory of antitrust that said that monopolies should be tolerated and even encouraged as efficient entities that could uh, realize great um, um, benefits to consumers because they didn't have to waste time on, on competing. They could have tight integration in their supply chain and so on. And that the only time antitrust law should be enforced is when, um, you could show that this was being used to raise prices on consumers. Uh, and, and critically, I think for farmers, it, it would not be an antitrust violation to, uh, grind down the prices you were getting from suppliers. In fact, that's considered a benefit. Because if the prices are being reduced at the at the barrel head, if the prices are being reduced in, in the in the supply chain, then those savings can be passed on to consumers. And that was the whole point in this in this sort of Thatcherite Reaganite conception of antitrust was to make things cheaper for consumers. And certainly, like that's the world we live in, right? I, I you know, I'm sitting next to a computer where I just replaced the RAM, and it was, I think. I calculated it at one ten millionth the price of the RAM that I bought in 1979 for my Apple II Plus. So certainly we live in an age in which prices have come down, but we also live in a way, an age in which wages and the price and the, the earnings of people in the supply chain have come down. 
And we've, we're living in an age in which monopolies have run rampant. So almost every sector you care to name is now monopolized. Uh, you know, there's two companies that make most of the spirits in the UK, two companies that make most of the beer, about four banks. There's one company that make all the eyeglasses, lenses, and own all the high street um, uh, eyeglass shops and the major eyewear insurers in the world. It's a French-Italian conglomerate called Luxottica Essilor. There's one professional wrestling league, one company that makes cheerleading uh, outfits, three athletic shoe companies, uh, four giant shipping companies, and they, they no one can regulate them or tell them how to run their business. And for years, they ignored people who warned them and said, you know, yes, you, you save money on diesel when you make your ships bigger, but eventually one of them is going to get stuck in the Suez Canal. And they just said, you know, what do you know about shipping? And we, we know how that a- ended up. And so um, the the Clayton Act has been a kind of dead letter for 40 years, but something has changed, and it's changed everywhere all at once. In the U.S., the new head of the Consumer Protection Agency, the Federal Trade Commission, is a very young woman named Lena Kahn, who four years ago was a law student who published a landmark paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox that described the problems with this consumer welfare theory and uh, and proposed a new enforcement schedule. Now she is the lead enforcer in America. In the, the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority has been going hammer and tongs at every kind of monopoly. Uh, and in the US, another enforcer, the Consumer uh, uh, Finance Protection Bureau, has just put out a call to hire a building full of engineers to track down uh, the technology behind finance scams and unravel it. In the UK, there's uh, 80 full-time technologists working for the Competition and Markets Authority's uh, Digital Markets Unit. Um, in Europe, you have the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, which are going to force big tech to uh, adhere to much stricter codes and subject them to much stricter scrutiny when they buy uh, their competitors. It's going to block a lot of mergers. The CMA has just uh, in- introduced uh, a merger inquiry into Microsoft's purchase of um, uh, not Blizzard, the other ga- big games companies, the largest merger in their history, uh, and and so on and so on. And so the answer to does this lawsuit under the Clayton Act have a chance is. A year ago, the answer would have been not a chance in hell. And now it's like, this is part of a wave. And, you know, maybe this wave won't get to the shore, but it is just the first in a succession of ever larger waves that we can see on the horizon. And there is, there is, um, right to repair law. Well, first of all, we had a right to repair um, federal uh, executive order in the United States. There's a right to repair directive that just passed in the European Union. The Federal Trade Commission has just gone after a bunch of firms that violate something called the Magnuson Warranty Act that says you can't get your warranty service if you got a third-party repair. And they forced um, Westinghouse and Harley-Davidson and a bunch of other firms to strike that language from their warranties. Um, so, you know, repair is becoming uh, much more central and, you know, that case for that was made by the pandemic where, you know, suddenly we couldn't ship goods halfway around the world for repair. We couldn't get parts from halfway around the world. And and we were in extremis. And so, you know, the case for repair is, is stronger than it's ever been. And I think we're we're looking at a, a, a new moment in in repair and more broadly in, in technological self-determination, the right to decide how your stuff works. And, and, and Corey, VIN locking is is obviously sold as a, a, a beneficial security me- measure, um, but also the, uh, the, the the Ukrainian dealer was able to track uh, those tractors via GPS. So there's obviously a lot of benefits in in this technology. Mm-hmm. But what are the downsides? Well, we're you know you see some of the downsides. So one is that. Um, 
given how poor the security of, of uh, John Deere is, the fact that there's kind of a time bomb uh, inside every one of these uh, cars means that, it, or tractors rather, means that it's only a matter of time until someone exploits them and shuts them down, either en masse or tactically. You have price gouging of um, farmers. You have the drag on innovation. So the, one of the interesting things, and for interesting, I mean terrible things, about John Deere's claim that farmers have no business fixing their tractors is that for the first 50 years of John Deere's existence, uh, the way that they improved tractors was by sending field engineers out to farms to observe how farmers had modified their tractors to get uh, better use out of them. Those innovations were then brought back to John Deere and incorporated into their manufacturing process. So the new models would incorporate these innovations from farmers. Those innovations are off limits. You know, I think it's um, absurd to think that John Deere has hired everyone who's got a good idea for an agricultural implement. Uh, and, and then there's the supply chain brittleness that, that arises from this. I think all, altogether, there's some very high costs. And, you know, if you want VIN locking, you could have it, but in a different way. So you could have, for example, a facility that said, until the tractor is sold, there is the capacity to shut it down remotely. And once the tractor is sold, that capacity is disabled. Right? So, so John Deere could have, a effectively like one of those little die tags that's on a shirt to stop shoplifters from stealing it, that that they could detonate. You could give that control to the farmer. So you could tell the farmer, here is a thing that detects non-John Deere service and non-John Deere parts. If you suspect that the person fixing your tractor isn't using John Deere parts when you've paid for them, or if you suspect that they're not a real John Deere uh, authorized technician when that's what you wanted, you can control the switch. But if you want a non-John Deere part, if you want a non-John Deere tractor, then you can turn it off. You know, this is the same argument we make with the, with the printer ink people. They say, well, the reason we do this is to protect you from dodgy printer ink. You wouldn't want your family photos to fade after a year or run. You know, never mind that, like, mostly we print out boarding cards for, for getting on a plane that we then throw away with our printers. But if, if that's what you wanted, you could turn that facility on, the detect counterfeiting facility, and then you could turn it off again when you didn't care. Um, it, I, I wrote a, a book once called information doesn't want to be free about all of this stuff. Uh, and in it, I pose something that I call Dr. O's first law. And it's this, anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you and will not give you the key, that lock is not there for your benefit. No, no. You know, if, if this is to protect farmers, let farmers decide when to turn it off. Indeed. And of course, on a much simpler level, uh, Corey, one can imagine uh, instances where maybe a farmer hasn't paid his bill um, and, and the tractor is, is locked by uh, unscrupulous or even well-meaning dealers or even deer themselves. Uh, lastly, yep. and really do thank you for, for, for joining me today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, what, what's next, next? Is there new legislation required? Is that going through at the moment uh, to protect uh, future cyber attacks on uh, uh, on agriculture, shall we say, which might come about because of hacking of, of software and so on? Well, I think that there's nothing that, well, there's nothing that I know of that directly addresses that. I mean, there are information security policies being promulgated everywhere because obviously there are a lot of information security issues. Um, but more broadly, I think what we're getting is this antitrust reform, this, this new day in anti-monopoly in which we are inviting more entities to participate in securing things. Because remember, there's no such thing as being secure in the abstract. 
right? You can't just be secure. You are only secure from something. You know, your seatbelt doesn't help you if you uh, if if your car is blown up. Your sprinkler system won't help you if your house uh, is in an earthquake, right? These security is for something. Um, Anti shoplifting tags don't stop your accountant from embezzling, uh, and so there there can't just be one company that decides what makes you secure. In, indeed, if you want to be secure from that company, right, if you think that that company has, um, has bad policies and you know, you've bought your tractor and you don't want that company to be able to impose those policies on you, by definition, that company can't be your security backstop because that they're your security threat. And, these antitrust laws, which include right to repair laws and, and other consumer protection laws, they amount to an invitation for everything from farmers cooperatives to nonprofits to small market entrants. Uh, there's one in Canada called Honeybee that I speak to quite often who make third party um, uh, attachments for agricultural equipment uh, to, to participate and to answer different needs, including security needs. Uh, and and indeed, there's no reason that we couldn't have someone who deactivates the the Vinlock as a vendor. I, I mean, I don't know if you remember when in the UK we we legalized um, unlo- uh, unlocking phones that had been locked to a specific carrier, and suddenly they were everywhere. It turns out that it wasn't mm. technically very challenging. It was just illegal to distribute the tools. So my dry cleaner down an old street station had a you know hand lettered sign out front that said, "We unlock all phones ten pounds." Uh, and I used his services. He, he did very well. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's no reason that you could not enable a, a literal cottage industry, I, I, expect, I suppose, because it would be agricultural, of people who went around and unlocked your tractor for you Indeed. so that you could use software of your choosing, that you could have security measures of your choosing. Um, you could gather your data uh, and directly access it rather than being subject to the vagaries and whims of, um, you know, the manufacturer. Uh, my, my, I'm going on vacation tomorrow with my parents in Canada and they just texted me to say all of the internet in Toronto is down because one company supplies it and they've gone down. It's a national emergency. Really? Right now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and so having all of your eggs in one basket, right? Having one firm that supplies it all, having all of your data only accessible over the internet when all of the internet lines are maintained by BT OpenReach, probably the worst company of any kind in the world and supplied by three or four different ISPs, each of which is worse than the last, uh, means that you may not be able to get your data at all and you may not be able to get it when you really need it. And so maybe you just want to mod your tractor so that you can download your data directly from it rather than looping it through John Deere servers. Well, Corey, look, thank you very much for, for all that. There's, there's an awful lot to take in and 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 consider. And uh, I, I really thank you for, for joining me today. It's, it's been a real pleasure and a real eye-opener as well. Thank you very much indeed. Likewise, my pleasure uh, to speak to you. So, yeah, food for thought at a time when, as mentioned, U.S. farmers are banding together to fight John Deere in the courts for the right to repair machinery that they have paid many thousands of dollars for. Deere contends that the customer can never own equipment for which it holds the coding to vital electronics. 
and nobody disputes the value of kill switches as a security device, but the outright owners must surely be provided with immediate solutions to fix their machinery speedily in case of an untimely breakdown, or indeed have the option to disable kill switches. Either way, the decision by US courts could have long-lasting repercussions for all machinery manufacturers. So I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf.